All right, well, I'm glad to see we got a pretty good group here today. Uh, I'd like to see a lot of people who aren't going to let the coronavirus get them down. Uh, if you guys are looking for a way to help protect your house, I saw a great idea on the Babylon Bee last week. And I don't know if any of you guys follow Babylon Bee on social media or anything, but it's just a, it's a Christian satire site. So you have to be really careful not to take it too seriously. But the guidance that was given on the Babylon Bee to protect us all was for all Christians to take Chick-fil-A sauce and smear it on top of your door so that when the coronavirus comes through, it passes over our houses. So, <laughs> so if you're looking for a way to better protect yourselves, Chick-fil-A is right down the road. Uh, we are... Uh, we're going to cover a, an interesting passage of text, and, and the best way I could think about how my journey on trying to help prepare this lesson today is I, I thought about a trip to Home Depot, and I am not a very handy person. My dad can tell you this. It's his fault. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't inherit many handy skills, uh, but my wife is. My wife is just incredible. She could, I'll hand her power tools all day long. She knows what she's doing. She's just amazing. But some of you guys are really handy in here. You like building things. I saw Josh Klossner built a table over the weekend. And that's just, you know, it's just what he does. But I, I have no skill like that in my body whatsoever. But if you do, and you're like my wife who does, you go into Hope Depot. And I, I want you to imagine what you would need to buy or what you need to put in the shopping cart at Home Depot if all you're wanting to do is build a birdhouse, right? You're just wanting to build a birdhouse. And so you, you go down the aisles and you maybe get a little bit of wood, a little bit of glue, a couple screws, maybe one small tool that you don't have already, but you're just, just a little bit of stuff that you need together. But what a lot of people do is they go to Home Depot to, to be able to get the little bits of things they need to build the birdhouse. And whenever they're looking at the wood, they see this other wood that they get really excited about. And they go ahead and pick some up. And whenever they're looking at the screws, they see these other anchors they need to get that look seem pretty exciting. They pick those up. And when they go down the power tool aisle, they, they end up getting three or four tools that they really didn't need for the birdhouse. But they, those looked really awesome. And then now that you have the tools, you get all these other supplies. And by the time you're done, you get so excited. You need toilet paper, obviously. By the time you're done, you get so excited, not only do you have what you need for the birdhouse, but you've got enough carts and enough stuff that you can remodel your entire kitchen, right? And then you kind of leave Home Depot with all of this different stuff. Now, for me, the, the reason I bring this up is, is for me, normally in this class, whenever I'm putting the lessons together for this class, I'm building a birdhouse, right? It's short, it's simple. It's, it's, it's not complicated. You don't need to do a whole lot of massive research. Uh, you kind of get in, you get out, you, you make it simple, and you, you come and I can present a birdhouse type lesson. Uh, but as I got into the research on this text, I got excited like a handy person does when they go to Home Depot. And I started pulling all this research off. I, started, I went down this verse, and it opened up a new pathway to understand other things. And I just kept putting stuff in the cart over and over again. So by the time I got done doing my research for this lesson, it was about 10.35 last night. And I was so excited with all the things I had learned uh, that I was like, well, I might actually have to prepare a lesson at some point in time. But this text that we're going to cover today is just packed full of things that are difficult to understand, uh, really, really difficult to understand. Uh, as I was researching, I came across this quote from Martin Luther, who you know, was a guy who led the Protestant Reformation. And he's talking about this text, and he goes, I really don't know what Peter's talking about. 
And so I thought to myself, if Martin Luther doesn't know what Peter's talking about, how in the world am I going to figure out what in the world uh, he's talking about? But as I, as I went through it and uncovered it, I, I really, really enjoyed this passage. And what I want to tell you today, before we really get into it, is that there is no true agreement on what this passage means. Uh, you can read five different commentaries, and you may come across with five different explanations, uh, some of which may be orthodox, some of them which may not, may not. But there's not a lot of massive agreement uh, on what this text means. And not only, not only on this text what it means, but this text actually references another text in Scripture, which is probably the second most misunderstood text in Scripture. So there's, there's a lot of, of, of things as you work through this that you may say, I've never heard that before, or that can't be right, uh, or surely Blake has lost his mind as I teach this today. But what I want you to do is I want, I want you to just have an open mind today. Uh, I want you to be willing to, to uh, understand this in a way that may feel almost a bit uncomfortable. It may just feel silly at times. It may just feel odd. Uh, but, but allow your mind to be open because sometimes I feel like the simplest explanation of what God is telling us is what he's actually telling us. And, and I've read these passages many times and I've just skipped over them because I didn't understand them and I didn't want to really believe what it seemed like it was saying. And so I just kind of keep on moving down the road. And for you guys in your normal daily Bible reading, if you ever come across a passage you just don't understand, that's fine. Keep on moving. Jot it down. Ask somebody something sometime, but move on down the road. There's plenty of things in the Bible that are hard to get, especially the first time you read it. Uh, but for me, we're doing expository Bible teaching in here, which means I'm teaching all of the text of First Peter. Me slash Jeff are teaching all the text of First Peter. I can't just ignore this verse. So keep an open mind, and we're going to uh, get into this. And, and I want you to know that, that you all, especially in our culture, you're going to gravitate towards understandings of Scripture that become very naturalistic at times. It's just kind of who we are, how we're wired. Uh, we're going to get a bit more naturalistic. And this lesson is going to go down a more supernatural uh, path. So just open your minds for it. To kick it off, I'm going to read verse 17 and 18. And this is the easy part of the text. This is bread and butter Christianity uh, that we need to understand. So let me read 17 and 18. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is not surprises. We've kind of heard this as we've studied First Peter. The major theme that we see over and over again in First Peter is that Christians, as Christians, we have to withstand persecution. We have to persevere in our faith regardless of what circumstances are going on around us. And we're called to mimic the example of Christ in all things that we do even if that means to suffer. And so the text here is very much simply saying, you know, don't suffer for doing evil. Suffer for doing what is good. Follow in the example of Christ. And, and these two verses, we could probably teach three or four weeks on these two verses alone because they unpack a lot of topics. Uh, we, we see here what the reason for suffering was in Christ. We, we understand that it was nece necessary, that the death of Christ was absolutely necessary because it provided atonement for us. He provided what was necessary to appease the wrath of God uh, as well as to reconcile us, uh, to reconcile us to God. Uh, we, we, you see that in the lines where it says he suffered, the, the righteous being Christ, suffered for the unrighteous 
unrighteous being us. All of this is the climax of God's plan of redemption, that Christ would come die on the cross for our sins to reconcile our people or God's people back to him. And so very simply, we're going here, why would we suffer for evil whenever Christ has died on the cross? Suffer for doing good, follow in his example. And, and don't underestimate just how incredible that reality is. Uh, we've been exposed to this concept for a long time. If you've been in any Bible study, especially here at Crossings, you're going to talk about this over and over and over again, that Christ came and died for our sins. That atonement uh, was absolutely necessary. So this text is setting up that kind of fundamental bread and butter understanding of the gospel, uh, of Christ's redemption in our lives. Now that makes sense to us. Now we're going to start to transition to things that don't make as much sense. We're going to transition to some things that are fairly supernatural. And and it can be difficult to understand. And so what I wanted to do though is I wanted to print out the Apostles' Creed. And for we don't we don't recite the Apostles' Creed very often here in our church, but I guarantee you many of you guys came from churches where you did that on a weekly basis. It's a very normal deal. The Apostles' Creed was put in place a long, long time ago as a way for people who may not have had access to the Bible or may not have been able to read or weren't literate, where they could understand this, memorize this, and if you could recite the Apostles' Creed and, and believe it, you got kind of the core fundamentals of what it meant to be Christian. I want to read the Apostles' Creed, and I, and I use a fairly early translation of the Creed, so it may be a little bit different than what you may have memorized in your head. I want to read it, and then we're going to talk about it for just a second. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and, heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, which just for a second, that means the Orthodox Church, you know, not Roman Catholicism, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Christians have been reciting this for ages, right? Ages we've been reciting this, and this is a great thing to know. If you've never memorized the Apostles' Creed, I would highly suggest you do that. It's a great thing to know here in the Christian faith. This is, this again, bread and butter Christianity, stuff that, that we all need to know. My question for you guys, I want you guys to talk about it in your groups for just a minute. I want you to just go through the Apostles' Creed, how much, pull out the aspects of the Creed that are supernatural in their nature, that are absolutely supernatural, that are not things that you and I can walk around and just experience here in this world, but are supernatural in their orientation. Talk about that at your tables and we'll come back. So did anyone, did anyone think that this was predominantly a natural text, that, that worldly, that we could experience the majority of the Apostles' Creed, feel it, touch it, smell it, see it, all that good stuff? It's kind of incredible just how much of the Apostles' Creed is supernatural in its orientation. I mean, you've got, you, get, you look through here and you go, okay, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that was physical, crucified, died, buried, all physical things born, but born from a virgin, supernatural elements in that. 
Um, you know, he rose again. That was not natural. He ascended into heaven. Not natural. Seated at the right hand of Father. Supernatural. Uh, he was going to come again spiritually to judge the living and the dead. I mean, th- you, you look through all of this. Th- there's a whole lot of supernatural aspects of the Apostles' Creed. And the only reason I say this is the interpretation of the text I'm going to give you today is supernatural. And I want you to not be afraid of that, right? I, I could give you a, natu- a very, a very um, scaled-down, watered-down version of this text, which may be true. Uh, but I'm going to go the supernatural route because actually the more and more I researched it, the more I felt like it probably was right. And so let's not be afraid of it as we go down that road. And so I want to tell a story as we really get into this because you have to, this, this text we're going to cover references back to pretty much the beginning. And so if you think about this, uh, we know the original fall. Satan was an angel of God's. Right, and when Satan Satan was not only an angel, he was an archangel. Uh, he commanded many angels, and so we understand that, that Satan really wanted a portion of the glory of God. He wanted to take a portion of that for himself. And whenever he fell, cast out of heaven, we understand that a, a, a band of angels fell with him. Right, that the, the probably the archangel, as he was an archangel and, in, and it was in control of a number of angels, they fell with him and followed him. These angels, these fallen angels in the biblical text are also referred to as sons of God in the text. And so I want to pick up in Genesis chapter 6, and I'll read this to you if you don't feel like flipping there. But Genesis Genesis chapter 6, I want to read this. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, so I want you to think fallen angels, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Nephilim, I want you to think giants. Were on the earth in those days, just big guys. And also afterward, when the, sons of da- when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, anyone who's been in the Bible for a long time, what happens immediately after this text? Does anyone know? The flood. The flood happens immediately after this text. So we, we're, we're seeing here that these fallen angels, if you, if you interpret this text the way it, it sounds, fallen angels came, were somehow able to, to really you know, take women, humans, as their wives, and we see you know, them propagate through this. And not only do, do they propagate through this, we, we see these Nephilim be created, which were called men of renown, these mighty men. Think, think Goliath, think Og, you know, think, think these descendants uh, of, of these people. And, and people really believed that part of the ancestry of this came from these fallen angels interacting with humans. And not only did they, they create these beings, but, but there seems to be this sense of immorality that occurs as a result because this is mentioned in part of the rationale for why the flood needed to come to cleanse the earth of the wickedness that was occurring. 
Now, if this was the only uh, mention of this, this phrase, sons of God, in the Bible, it may be really easy to ignore it. And honestly, I have read this text in Genesis probably a hundred times, and I always go, well, that sounds weird, and I just keep on going, right? So I've never really dug into this before, but this is not the only reference to this, these sons of God. In Job chapter 1, when Satan is going to God to get permission to tempt Job, uh, we see this. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you gone? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Uh, people believe, you know, that, that these giants or mighty men would have come from, you know, this ancestry. And, and this belief was not just something that, that we see only in the biblical accounts either. And so I think, you know, you look, when you study history and you study different philosophies and different religions and different people groups and, you, and sociology, you study how people work uh, all throughout the world, you'll find a lot of common stories, uh, a lot of common truths that people seem to have. If, if you've ever read The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, fantastic book, but he refers to this as the Tao, as, as something that seems to be common through every major religious system, through every major people group. There seems to be something that people can hold on to. And, and just like there's some commonality in what people believe to be right, to be true, to be honest, to be just, there seems to be some commonality in some of the major stories that get told across people groups. Uh, you can go to the ancient Near East, uh, so the people who would have been in the land of Canaan prior to the Israeli settlements, and you can find lots of stories of people who believed in this massive flood that occurred. And the names may be changed a little bit different, the rationale for the flood may be different, but you'll see it. You go further off into the world, you'll see people with these stories of, these, of this massive flood that occurred. Uh, you will, if you go through different uh, areas of mythology, you'll also see common stories for this concept that some sort of angel or God or divine being mated with women and created a product or created something mighty. Think about what you, you guys, everyone in here probably knows a bit of Greek mythology. Think about what we understand from Greek mythology where this concept plays out. And, and from those people groups at the time, and I tell you this because you need to know the original readers of this text in 1 Peter would have, understand these, would have understood these worldviews better than we do today. They would, have known, they would have known this better. And so those original people groups, they even thought that whenever you saw powerful kings, uh, these men of renown, as it says in the text, that there was probably some sort of tie back to some sort of divine origin running through their blood that made them these mighty men. It was a very prevalent thought. So in Genesis 6, 1, we dis- 1 through 4 in that text, uh, we, we get to see just how corrupt the world had become. And, and we believe these men of renown, these men de- uh, you know, deriving from uh, that combination, uh, really helped to set the stage for what God is going to do. And in verse 11 in that chapter, it says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so I want us to make sure we understand this concept of what was going on in the world at the time of the flood. Maybe a bit more supernatural than we give it credit for. And at least, at least, even if you take that element off, the people reading this would have had a better understanding of some of those elements than we do today. 
So before we get into the, to the text in First Peter, I want you to know that what you're going to read in this text is referencing the flood event and is referencing these sons of God that are described prior to the flood event. And there's types of prophecy. There, there's a couple different types of prophecy in the Bible. You have prophecy where God would speak to his prophets and say, go say my word to the people. Very blunt prophecy. And those prophecies would be f- fulfilled. You also have something in the Bible called typology, though. And typology is a type of prophecy that works a little bit different. It's an unspoken prophecy. It's an event. It's an institution. It's, it's a person that does something that foreshadows something that will come in a future day. But you won't truly understand it. It won't be revealed until that future day come and that event happens. We see this all over the place in the Bible. I joked about the Babylon Bee and the, the, um, the Chick-fil-A sauce over your door for the Passover. The Passover is a great example of a type, of a, of a type right, of, of a prophecy that was made. That was a real event that occurred. But not only was it, did it actually happen, but it foreshadowed the crucifixion of Christ. Right? Think about the perfect lamb that was slaughtered. Christ is the perfect lamb. Think about how the, the blood of that lamb kept all the people from being spared from the wrath of God. The blood of Christ spares us from the wrath of God. You think about that event that occurred in the Passover was a type. The antitype, the fulfillment of the prophecy, was the crucifixion of Christ. If you understand that type of prophecy, you can understand what Peter's doing in this text. He is pointing back to the sons of God and to the flood event. That's a type. That's an event that's going to occur that is actually going to be a prophecy that's fulfilled in Christ, in the resurrection of Christ. So with that in mind, I see some heads nodding, some people glazing over. With that in mind, though, let's pick up in the text. I'm going to pick up in verse 18. It says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So remember, they would have, original readers would have understood this a little better. And the, the people listening to this would have been, uh, especially Peter, if we think about Peter witnesses more to the Jewish people in the early church. You would have Gentiles reading this as well, but Peter really talks a lot to the Jewish readers. Jewish readers this time would have connected even more dots than we are at the moment. Uh, they would have been familiar with some literature that we don't, we don't consider inspired, that's not in the Bible, but is in a lot of the documents that they would review as a part of their religious ceremonies. And, and we see this tight connection that gets formed between the story account in Genesis we just read, a passage in Second Peter, a passage in Jude, as well as a passage in an Enoch, uh, which, which is a Jewish text that we don't consider inspired. But we see in Second Peter and Jude a reference back to Enoch, which would help us understand what the Jewish people were understanding at that point in time. I want to read from Second Peter. Just let me read this real quick uh, so you can see what else Peter says about this whole concept. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, 
Tartarus. Uh, the, the Greek word is Tartarus, just remember that. And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There's this concept in 1 Peter that God knows how to rescue his people, and he also knows how to punish the unrighteous and to keep the unrighteous in judgment until the ultimate day of judgment, right? He understands how to do this. And this is all a reference back to the sons of God story that occurs in Genesis. In Enoch, it describes the sons of God who committed the, uh, who committed the offense that we're talking about. And um, what we see here is that, is that they, they believe this story that works a little bit differently than the story we see. What they believe is that this man named Enoch, who we read about in, in Genesis, uh, he was actually a prophet who never died. And in, in this book, it tells this story where these sons of God had been punished for, for their rebellion and had gone down into this world of Tartarus. Uh, and so the Greeks would understand Tartarus to kind of be like this underworld, not quite like hell, but like this place of where you're held for a final judgment. And so these sons of God had been sent down to this place, and, and they had appealed to Enoch to go to God and lobby on their behalf that they ought to be spared this judgment. And so Enoch goes down and he personally visits these people in Tartarus. uh, And then he goes back up to God to appeal on their behalf. And God sends them back down and says, no, you will be judged. Right? So this is the idea that they have uh, in in this text. That there is actually this place where, where the sons of God, these fallen angels, are being held for final judgment. And this concept of Tartarus is not a foreign concept to anyone who had been reading this, including the Greeks. We see Tartarus show up everywhere in Greek mythology. Uh, it was originally, if you want to think about this, remember I told you there's always these stories that will kind of get splintered off, but there's a common core in the stories of lots of different people groups. Tartarus to the Greeks was originally the place where when the Olympians, the god of Olympians, battled the Titans and defeated the Titans, they sent the Titans to Tartarus to be held for judgment. So think about what the Titans were. They were this, this kind of divine heritage uh, in the Titans, and they were held for final dug- judgment. The Greeks were picking up on this concept that had been talked about for millennia up to that point. They're picking up on the same overall idea. Uh, there's this ancient Greek, Greek text that explains exactly what happened, where we see that the Titans, the Titan gods are hidden away down in the misty gloom by decision of Zeus, the ultimate authority, the cloud gatherer, in a place of decay at the end of the vast earth. They have no way out. Poseidon fastened brazen doors thereon, and a wall is driven up to the doors from both sides. Think about this concept as a holding place of final judgment. So, 
Enoch goes and appeals to God. It gets overturned. Uh, And what Peter is saying is he's seeing this story of Enoch to be an event that occurred back in the past that foreshadowed, that was a prophecy that foreshadowed something that was going to occur in the days of Christ. And so this text is picking up on what actually happened in the days of Christ to fulfill this prophecy. I'm getting some glaze over eyes, but it's okay. I want to reread that text real quick. It says, Jesus, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. What they're talking about is that Jesus, when he died on the cross and read the Apostles' Creed, he descended into the dead. Or some of your translations will say he descended into hell, which actually was Tartarus, right? And when he descended down into the dead, what, 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 the, what Peter is saying is that when he descended into the dead, he actually preached to the spirits in prison, which were these sons of God who are fallen angels being held over for judgment. So here's my question for you guys. Group question for a second. You guys talk about this. I'm just curious what you come up with. What do you think he said to them? If Jesus descended into the dead after he died on the cross and he's getting to, to preach to these fallen angels who led to immortality and rebellion against God all over the world, what do you think Christ said when he preached to the spirits in prison? Talk about that for a second and then we'll, we'll come back. We'll, we'll come back. Anyone have an idea that you want to share that's like PG of what you think Jesus may have said to the fallen spirits, the spirits in prison? What's that? <laughs> Any thoughts here? No one brave enough to offer a suggestion of what we think Jesus was saying? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, repent, you know, which, which would imply an offer of if you're saying to repent, they have an option to repent and maybe follow him. Um, that's wrong, but it's a great, I'm kidding, but I'll say you gotta be careful because I don't know if anyone in here at any point in time in their life, um, was a member of the church of Latter-day Saints, uh, you know, Mormon church. Uh, but this is a passage that that church picks up on and part of their belief, and I'm going to butcher the complete belief system of the Mormon church, but part of the belief system is that there's this opportunity for all who have fallen to repent, uh, even after, after death. And they kind of pick up on this as, as that, uh, concept. Uh, it's not what I believe the text is saying. I'm not calling you a Mormon. No, it's, uh, so anyway, but, but in case you, I'll say we may have someone in here who grew up as part of the church or was at one point in time, uh, but that's a verse that, that they'll, they'll pick up on. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's different than that. I, I want you to think about the cosmic battle, the spiritual warfare that was really occurring. And if you've, if you've ever, if you, if you missed Terry Fakes' Christmas series he did in December, which was the weirdest Christmas series I've ever heard, it was a Christmas series that was angels and demons and spiritual warfare. But if you picked up on that lesson, you saw that all these things we see happening on the surface, there's this incredible spiritual battle occurring behind the scenes that's hard to understand, but it's actually very clear all through the biblical text if you really understand it. And I think this is a bit of a culmination of spiritual warfare. I think when Jesus went and he preached to the spirits, and I'm going to caveat this, I could be wrong, right? But when he preached to the spirits, it was a bit like for lack of better terms, you remember whenever Baker Mayfield took the flag and planted it right in midfield? Remember that? Whenever he did that, you know, we are victorious. I feel like it was a bit of a planting of the flag moment. And that's why you don't do illustrations on the fly. But, but you really think about this. The, the, 
everything was going in favor of the evil of this world. The Son of God had come. They had, they had heard that this prophecy might happen. They had seen the Son of God, and they had used the, the influences of the politics and the culture, and even the religious leaders had all joined together to destroy the Son of God, to destroy the one chance that man had to be redeemed. And so these spirits who were in prison, who had been judged by God, it might be saying, we've won. And Jesus Christ dies. They see him die, and he descends and preaches to the spirits to say, even death does not hold me. What you thought was your victory actually sealed your demise because the blood, my blood will cover the sins of all of those who have fallen away and now have faith in me, and my death is now their victory. Right, That is what I think he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And what an incredible message that is, that even death cannot defeat it, that we worship a risen Lord. If Jesus had died on the cross and he had not come back, if he had not been risen from the dead, we don't have a religion. Right, We depend upon that. But I've always wondered about that, that the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into the dead, and on the third day he rose. Preach to the spirits in prison that not even death can hold me. I have one. It is finished, as he said on the cross. And so, for me, I think that is such an uplifting message that we are on this side of this great cosmic spiritual battle. We are not on the other side of the cross. We are on the right side of the cross, on the right side of history. And you see that theme continue in this text as it talks about baptism. Uh, It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and they're not talking about here about just trying to make sure you understand baptism. The language is much more specific. Where it says appeal here in this, it, where it says, uh, yeah, appeal, what it's really talking about is a pledge. When it says appeal to your good conscience, it really means loyalty. So it's saying baptism saves you not because of the act of baptism, but because it's a symbol of the fact that you have pledged your loyalty to the winning side. Right? He has just gone down and preached to the spirits in prison that, that he has won the battle, and you are pledging your loyalty, publicly avowing to everyone who's all around that I am with Christ. Because you think about the early church at the time, they would have been lots of adults who were coming from all over, uh, may have been Jewish, may have been Gentile, but were committing their lives to Christ. And how easy would it have been in the social persecution that was going to kind of say, yeah, yeah, no, I, I believe in that, and then just fade away. But if you get baptized, it's a public decision that you're saying, I am pledging my loyalty to the risen Christ. And we think back to the flood, the idea that God used water to cleanse the sins of humanity, to set things right. We see that come through in our baptism in Christ. There's a reason all this imagery is consistent all the way throughout the Bible. And it's also no coincidence that this passage ends with Jesus Christ going into heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all being subjected to him. 
Uh, what, what, the really, what the people believed in the early church is that whenever they would baptize people, they actually would recite as a part of their baptism this idea that you are now part of this victory over Satan and over the forces of evil, over those fallen sons of God who have been just creating havoc in our society. You are now part of the winning side. And so every act of battle is like our little chance, our little opportunity to kind of plant our own flag at half court or at midfield. I'm a basketball player, half court. At midfield to show that we are on this side of the spiritual battle. Every single baptism is just another reminder of the victory of Christ. So my charge to all of you is believe this understanding of the passage, don't believe this understanding of the passage. The, the overall root of the truth is, is going to hold that we worship a risen Savior who has defeated all of the forces and nothing can take that away. But if we truly understand this for what it is, my thing is, do we live this way? Do we live this way with, the, with, with just appreciating the fact that we are not on the other side of the cross. We are on this side of the cross. We are living in the greatest of ages. And are we going to suffer? Yes. Are we going to suffer for doing good? Yes. That's what it started out at the very beginning. Let's follow in the example of Christ because he got to go all the way down to the dead, to the people who started some of this to begin with, and say, you're done, right? My people will reign supremely with me. So let's live accordingly. That's all you have to do this week. All right, let me pray for us when we get out of here today. Father, I, I thank you so much for these men. I thank you for the wisdom you've given us. I thank you for our church. Uh, I thank you for Jesus Christ who came and died for the unrighteous. Uh, that is me. You came and you died for me. If no one else was in the room today right now, I would proclaim that you came and you died for me no matter what I've done. Thank you for giving me the faith that you have. Thank you for giving the faith to these men. May it bear fruit in our church and in our community. May we live according to the right side of the cross. May we live like we are the victors with you, knowing that battles are still going to be fought, but the war's been won. You've done that. Thank you for the grace you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.